0: chocolate 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 from dame cacao i'm max gandy and this is chocolate on the road the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world so let's hit the road all chocolate is made from cacao beans they're the fermented and dried seeds of the cacao tree which is also called the cocoa tree. Historically, these cacao beans have been treated merely as a commodity, grown as cheaply as possible and sold to the highest bidder, kind of like the almonds they resemble. But about a year or two ago, I realized that I was recognizing a lot of the same cacao origins. Not in a bad way, just an observation. But it got me thinking about how I perceived the cacao side of chocolate. For the most part, the cacao used in my favorite chocolates wasn't obscure anymore. The craft chocolate ideal of traceability was really coming full circle. In fact, just the other day, I was looking at a couple of chocolate bars in my collection, and I noticed that they were made with beans from the same place, Rose Hill Estate, on the island of Tobago. But it wasn't the name of the estate which caught my eye. It was the font. The estate's name was printed in the same font on each bar, like a signature. It's the little things like that which hint at what's to come in the future of craft Chocolate. Consumers no longer have to put their trust and loyalty only in the chocolate makers. Now we can trust in the cacao brands as well. Cacao is native to South America. But the majority of the world's cacao comes from Africa. Over a third of the world's supply comes from the Ivory Coast alone. So over the years, most all of Africa has garnered a reputation for having low-quality cacao. Yet one of the most talked-about cacao origins of the moment comes from Africa, specifically Tanzania, where one cocoa producer is proving that reputation wrong. And what is a cocoa producer, you might ask?
1: What we do is we work with smallholder cocoa farmers. We buy their wet cocoa beans, which we then bring to our fermentary, where we centrally ferment, dry, grade, blend, package, and then export the beans to chocolate makers around the world.
0: This is Simran Bindra, co-founder of Cocoa Kamili, a cocoa producer in the Kilenbera Valley of central Tanzania. Simran spoke to me from his office in Tanzania. So, there are some noticeable lags in the recording where it kind of sounds like we were talking over each other. We weren't. I chose to speak with Simran for this story because his company is a perfect example of how quality branding can defy long held reputations. So, basically, you notice this movement in the US happening with craft chocolate and that everybody was using sort of the same type of ingredient and you wanted to fill this gap while also being able to help the local community somewhere in Tanzania. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I, wanted, I thought that there was an opportunity for Tanzanian cocoa to be, to be included in these high-end cocos. And I thought that by, there were three things we wanted to do. We wanted to put Tanzania on the map as fine-flavored cocoa. We wanted to improve the livelihoods of some of the farmers that we would be working with. And we hopefully wanted to build a profitable business, you know, Um, two of those three things we've done quite well, I think one we're one we're still still working on, but it's coming towards it.
0: There's a very roundabout story behind how Simran wound up in rural Tanzania, which you can listen to in episode zero of this podcast. For now, let's just say it involves a fortuitous work assignment and a bargain with the government. During our conversation, I tried to suss out exactly why Simran and his business partner Brian have taken this specific approach to building Cocoa Camille.
1: If you're trying to sell having to a, a high-end market, um, I think having a brand is is totally necessary. For a couple hundred bucks now, anyone can make chocolate at home. That's not something that was the case 15 years ago. Um, and you know, to see it follow the same roots of craft beer and 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 craft coffee and so on is um is exciting um those comparisons aren't necessarily the best comparisons out there you know everyone always compares craft cof- cocoa to craft coffee um or craft chocolate to craft coffee saying okay look the market is poised for the same sort of growth that craft coffee went through and unfortunately that's not necessarily true because customers have no qualms about buying at least one three dollar cup of coffee every day or a four dollar cup of coffee every day but unfortunately. Um, consumers aren't buying an eight dollar chocolate bar every day and I don't see that changing anytime soon. I think an average consumer sees a chocolate bar on the supermarket with a and it has a little logo a little certification stamp on it and the average consumer doesn't doesn't know or think to to do the research into what that actual certification means um, and that they assume that a third party has done a thorough Um, investigation into the supply chains and that that the certification reflects something that it might not necessarily actually do. And that hurts smaller chocolate makers and smaller cocoa brands who may not have the money to pay for certifications because their money is actually directed into an actual ethically functioning supply chain.
0: In a big way, chocolate makers are the consumers here. But due to import laws and taxes, Cocoa Kamili doesn't usually export directly to makers. They use middlemen and women. So it's not surprising that when I asked Simran about his pet peeves, he wanted to talk directly to chocolate makers.
1: I don't see this too much, but I've seen it a little bit, and I'm a little bit concerned about it, is a lot of choc- uh, is chocolate makers switching origins um, because, you know, for a new season they want a new origin. or Or we've had people say to us, Oh, we don't want to use your beans because everyone uses your beans and you know we're a tiny operation that is like um you know we're doing such a small amount of beans that we need and we desperately need to scale up to be able to survive as a business so when you know people say oh you know everyone uses your beans i'm like who are these who are these people you know um if someone buying a kilo of beans uh, to to roast at home and has an Instagram account doesn't doesn't mean you know if we have a lot of those customers it doesn't necessarily mean that we're that we're making it. Um, if a chocolate maker wants to actually sustainably invest to, to develop proper sustainable supply chains, what we need is is consistency. Um, you know if we can't go to a farm and say sorry we can't buy this year because chocolate makers X Y and Z decided that they. That we're too played out, or that they've used us for three seasons, and they want to use someone else now. You know, so what? What is that farmer supposed to do with her farm and her trees? So that's that's a risk. Before I started this work, chocolate was, you know, chocolate was a Kit Kat or a Cadbury's fruit and nut or a Toblerone. You know, um something that I never would have thought about the ingredients behind it. And now, you know. Whether you're tasting like a Seren bar, which has Ecuador and Tanzania side by side, or you're tasting a dandelion brownie flight. And where you can see that the only differences between these two chocolate bars is the origin of the cocoa. And there's such a world of difference in the flavor behind it. It's like, my God, so much more goes into this process than, than one would necessarily think of.
0: In May of 2018, I wrote an article on my site which characterized Cocoa Camilli as an established cacao brand because to me and to many other consumers they are established and recognizable but here and it's a little muffled i asked simran why he still considers cocoa kimli a startup
1: maybe i'm wrong to categorize it as such but um i guess i sort of think of a business as as out of the startup phase when things are things are stable and um, there's a clear sort of sustainable path for the business. And while I, I do think we are on that path, I don't think we've quite reached it yet. Hopefully in the next sort of 12, 18 months, I'll, I'll be able to say our startup phase is over and we entered into a stage of stability and, and growth. But it's still it's still a very steep learning curve. You know, We're learning new things every day. Um, and I, to some extent, I hope that never changes, but to another extent, um, I, I would like some sense of stability. <laughs>
0: what have been the growing pains of building a business in cacao and of building a business in a developing country in
1: general? Hmm. Infrastructure is probably one of our biggest challenges. Um, You know, we're in a very rural part of the country. Um, in the rainy season roads wash out um, and places become inaccessible. You know, we've had bridges wash out, we've had bridges break under us. You know, we, we source from a, a large number of very small farmers so Logistically, that's, that's a challenge. Regulations, um, just general sense of uncertainty. Um, some of our third-party vendors aren't really up to, up to the same standard, and you don't necessarily have the same level of selection as you might in other parts of the world. Um, but that being said, I've never started a business in uh, another part of the world, so uh, maybe these are just challenges to small businesses rather than challenges in, uh, in Cocoa or in a developing country.
0: You know, I have to say I think the breaking bridges <laughs> is probably a sure, general that's
1: fair. <laughs>
0: problem, generally. What advice would you give to someone looking to start a pick um,
1: brand? I wrote next that question, don't. <laughs> um, um, don't start one. Um I think
2: that
1: <laughs> I think that look, just like be realistic. The space is super crowded. Um it's gonna be very hard to achieve scale anytime soon. Just to be just to be realistic. You know, larger chocolate, as chocolate makers grow and become uh, more sustainable um, and be able to use larger volumes, hopefully hopefully this will change and more more of the, the cacao brands will, there will be more states and more cacao brands um, coming up. Uh, I just think that right now, I think you need to think long and hard before pouring your life savings into starting a, a cocoa brand for high end high end chocolate.
0: Simran says that anyone using cocoa Camilli cacao is welcome to visit their facilities. They're just a 12-hour drive from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania's capital. While Tanzanian cacao has been defying expectations, Belizean cacao has been blowing them out of the water. Even though most cacao is African, people in Central and Northern South America have much stronger cultural ties to the fruit. It was actually because of these ties that a few of my final papers during university were on this one cacao cooperative in southern Belize, Maya Mountain Cacao. Maya Mountain started in 2010, and at the time that I was writing about it, it seemed like a great example of a social enterprise doing good in a developing country. What I didn't realize at the time was that Maya Mountain Cacao was part of this first wave of cocoa producers, who are going beyond just processing better cacao? They were rewiring how we consumers understand the role of those who produce cocoa. And even though Maya Mountain Cacao now works with hundreds of farmers, if not thousands, and has inspired many other brands, there's one woman who always comes to mind when I think of Maya Mountain Cacao.
2: My name is Emily Stone. I'm the founder and CEO of Uncommon Cacao, which is a specialty cacao company that connects. Cacao producers across eight countries and growing um, with about 150 chocolate makers globally.
0: Emily's been in the cacao business for about a decade now. She started Maya Mountain with her business partner in 2010. In 2013, they began expanding their umbrella company, Uncommon Cacao, when they started Cacao Verapaz in Guatemala. But rewiring how people see something that seems so far away Is not as easy as a snap of the fingers. As someone who's worked with cacao really closely, is there anything that you get annoyed with that people
2: don't seem to understand? I think there's so much that you know people are still learning about in cacao and are coming to understand. You know, as an industry, we do have to be somewhat patient and understanding that um, the movement that bean-to-bar chocolate has started is still really, really new. Um, and for many consumers, you know, there's just so much education that needs to be done. I get a lot of questions about sort of, you know, when, when was, when is it all going to change? You know, when is the cacao supply chain going to be better? When is all of the cacao that's produced going to be excellent? And this is, you know, multiple decades of work ahead of us as an industry. Um, so I think it's good for all of us to be patient and kind with each other and, and with our market as we continue to, to learn and grow.
0: My mountain cacao is market started off as being the chocolate makers they supplied cacao to. But over time, Maya Mountain and Uncommon Cacao have had realizations that the more connections they build with chocolate consumers, the more opportunities they're building for the farmers behind the cocoa. How would you define a cacao brand as the definition of being built?
2: I would say a cacao brand uh, for me would be defined as a clear, consistent, well-known flavor profile, story, and sort of uh, personality for each uh, cacao origin. Um, And for cacao origins, you know, that can be defined as a specific fermentary. uh, It can be defined as a specific region. And in some cases, it can be a sort of a specific country. And so you know, when we think about cacao origins, that in itself is complicated enough to, to really nail down and say, okay, what does that actually mean? And then thinking about a cacao brand, that's sort of the next level of, okay, now that we have our origin sort of defined clearly in terms of the, you know, geographic boundaries and, and the people who are producing the beans, then how do we present that to the market and how do we build value for those producers um, and for the origin?
0: One word you said that really stuck out to me. I love the characterization of it having a personality.
2: Because yeah, I definitely think there is, you know, a um, for it's just sort of branding one one. You know, the first step that you do in building a brand is really go deep sort of internally to what this thing would be if it was humanized, you know, and how it would connect with humans. And so, um, you know, we've done this for uncommon cacao, for example, in terms of our brand as a company is, you know, thinking about, you know, how does this brand act, you know, if it had to go, um, if it had, you know, if it was going to do something on the weekend, what would it do? You know, what colors does it like? Um, all of these different things which in the process of maybe doing it feel really silly um you know but then do add a lot more depth and meaning to to the brand um of whatever it is that you're trying to build and i think you know for us there's with cacao origins there's not really a need to do that exercise but it does sort of naturally happen when you have chocolate makers and industry professionals coming to visit an origin and really getting to know the people, getting to know the place, getting to know the real feel of, of that origin or of that country, you know, it does create sort of a personality.
0: You touched on this earlier. How do you think using or creating a, a cacao brand is different from the more traditional single origin designation?
2: yeah honestly, I don't think either term is really defined yet, so i can't I can't you know my any my comment here would just be totally subjective um and I'm still really coming to understand what a cacao brand means itself um so I would say right now you know I'm sort of thinking them about them as interchangeable in terms of an origin being the thing that would be branded, and whether or not it has a brand is really just up to sort of the Um, efforts of those running the origin and also the sort of market traction that the origin may or may not have.
0: So many consumers think of, even if they know chocolate making pretty well, they still tend to think of it goes farmers to chocolate makers to consumer. They don't really think about how that cacao actually gets to the makers. How would you describe your role in, in that cacao branding to the actual chocolate maker, their brand. That intermediary sure. Step.
2: Yeah. So we are, we are a connector. We are proudly middle woman in the supply chain, um, helping to really, you know, connect the dots and weave these people together. You know, really it's it, while we sell a product, um, cacao beans, I think in the end of the day, what we're really doing is, is connecting people and helping people work together. Um, you know, so we we play a key role in the supply chain by being able to aggregate uh, cacao from many different origins and provide a portfolio of options to chocolate makers that are looking for different flavor profiles, stories, different quantities, different sort of degrees of exclusivity, so to speak, in their cacao beans. We're able to help support producers as an aggregator of their products. One thing that I think, you know, consumers and, and even some chocolate makers don't quite um understand is that, you know, for many of the producers who are supplying craft chocolate, craft chocolate is still such a small industry that it's very rare that one or even five craft chocolate makers would uh be able to purchase the entire harvest of one origin. Um and so typically, you know, these origins are shipping Five, ten, fifteen, twenty containers per year, and they need the stability of a buyer who can you know bring on the cacao from the harvest as it's you know coming out as it's ready to ship, even if some of those specific individual chocolate makers aren't ready for it yet, and so we're able to provide that stability and dependability on the sales side um, to origins and we're also able to provide that Reliability of supply and access to chocolate makers. So we essentially de risk the chocolate supply chain, the craft chocolate supply chain, by playing that key uh, middle woman role, being able to help, you know, everyone grow their businesses. And in turn, you know, we really see it as our role is is helping to really grow the industry, Um, you know, helping to bring in great cacao from from great producers um, and helping chocolate makers have access to the beans at you know, affordable prices that still allow farmers to live, you know, with dignity and build strong businesses that will help them produce cacao for many years into the future and and continue supplying these chocolate makers.
0: One of the answers I was most excited to get from Emily was about how cacao producers starting up now could build a successful cacao brand. And her answer had nothing to do with finding the personality of the beans. It went back to the source. The farmers.
2: For us, when we were building Maya Mountain and when we were building Cacao Vera Paws, we did a lot of work consulting with the producers themselves. I would say the branding piece would definitely be at the at the very end, and typically only after you even have some chocolate makers working with your cacao who can give you feedback and ideas on what they want to see in the brand and how it can best work for them as the company that will really ultimately be responsible for introducing your product your cacao uh, to consumers
0: but even before you're assessing bean quality you need to actually buy the beans and for cocoa producers like maya mountain or cacao Verapaz, the proud middle women, it's important for them to make it clear what prices they're paying every year they publish a transparency report to make these prices public but making better profits for both maya mountain and the farmers they work with, comes down to the difference between farm gate and export prices.
2: The farm gate price is very different than the FOB or the export price. Um, the farm gate price is typically in craft chocolate supply chains paid for wet cacao, um, because most cacao is centrally fermented um, that will be sold into the craft chocolate market. And so that farm gate price is, is typically you know paid to the farmer for wet cacao, and then the export or FOB price is what would be paid to the fermenter or exporter when they sell the cacao, when they ship it internationally. So that's basically the price of the cacao that they paid to the farmers, plus all of the cost of fermentation, drying, overhead, etc. to get to their export price.
0: This is the process through which most cacao brands go. But one of the big questions I had for Emily, as with Simran earlier in the show, was about competition in the cacao brand's market. Because back when I was writing all those papers on Maya Mountain cacao, Maya Mountain was one of the only businesses of its kind I could find. They had a waiting list much longer than the number of chocolate makers they were supplying to. Quality cacao was just harder to find half a decade ago. But these days, I see quality cacao coming from dozens of countries around the world. Yet still on the consumer end, it didn't click for me that all of those brands were competition for Maya Mountain Cacao. On the surface, specialty chocolate and specialty cacao seemed to be growing hand in hand. Do you think that the cacao brand market is getting crowded? Like fine chocolate is in certain places?
2: Oh yeah. Definitely. I mean, in um I think it's pretty you know, commonly discussed now in craft chocolate and specialty cacao that we are in um, a pretty serious situation of oversupply. And I think one of the main reasons for that is, you know, dating back almost almost a decade ago, maybe like seven or eight years ago, there were those um, headlines that came out in newspapers around, you know, the million metric ton deficit that we're going to see by 2020 of cocoa, um, you know, that the world is running out of cocoa. Uh, that we're just, um, you know, we're there's not going to be any more chocolate, these really sensationalist headlines that came out. And what that did was spur a lot of, you know, people at origin, investors, um, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, producers, cooperatives to get into cacao and, and specifically to get into producing specialty cacao um, because it looked like that was sort of the area of the market that was growing the fastest. And if you look at just the number of chocolate makers, the pure number of chocolate makers in the U.S. um, over the last 10 years, I mean, there is that hockey stick sort of growth happening of just pure number of players who are buying cacao beans and turning them into chocolate. But then if you look at the volume that those chocolate makers are buying, um, it's not growing that fast. It's certainly not growing as fast as the cacao production available to that market is growing. And so, you know, it has become a much, uh, much more crowded market in the last several years as new origins have come uh, into the market. um, And also as production has grown from origins that have been around for longer. You know, for example, at Maya Mountain Cacao, we spent um, our first five years as a business completely sold out. You know, we just didn't have any cacao available for years. And so as people would contact us, we would have to. Um, turn them away. And it was part of why we ended up starting Cacao Verapaz in Guatemala and then growing to start Uncommon Cacao where we could offer, you know, cacao from a number of different origins to these makers. Um, because we wanted to be able to, to be there, you know, to provide that support and, and to be able to achieve our mission of creating more stability and success for smallholder producers in the supply chain. Um, but it is, um, you know, as, As Maya Mountain grew, um, we also invested a lot in planting and helping producers improve productivity. Uh, We planted out our own demonstration farm, which is about 60 acres. Um, We planted over 125,000 trees uh, with uh, local smallholder farmers. And so our production has grown um, pretty dramatically uh, in Belize. And we've struggled to find a market for all of it.
3: In Belize, it was like this really fascinating uh, start thing that happened where Maya Mountain, and I think and TCGA had been producing cacao in Belize for a very long time and selling it to Green and Blacks and a few others.
0: Toledo Cacao Growers Association, indeed. From southern Belize, we hop over to Tokyo, Japan, where the story of Belizean cacao continues, wholly unprompted, by Greg Dallasander. I'm Greg Delisander.
3: I'm the chocolate sorcerer here at Dandelion Chocolate.
0: Dandelion is a chocolate maker started in San Francisco and expanded in 2016 to Japan, where Greg and I spoke in January 2019. You can hear more of Greg in episode 4, entitled Japan. There are kids playing outside of the room we were in, but I've muted them as best I could. Greg's role as cacao sorcerer for Dandelion keeps him very busy. It's taken him around the world, Yet, when I brought up the concept of cacao brands, one of the first words out of Greg's mouth was Belize.
3: My Mountain got started. My Mountain, in fact, is the same age as Dandelion. And so we all often joke that we're siblings, that we've grown up together and that, you know, we have we've run into the same challenges kind of at the same time. Um, But uh, they built a great brand out of Belizean cacao. And then suddenly, two years ago, there were... Half a dozen, a little more than half a dozen people who came to Belize and said, "Wait a minute, we, we want to, we're, we're going to do Belizean cacao too." Clearly, everyone's buying Belizean cacao. I think what a lot of people who look from the outside of the chocolate industry don't realize is when they say a lot of people, it's like, yeah, there's a ton of chocolate makers buying two bags, and for anyone who doesn't know, a bag is like sixty kilograms, right?
0: Sounds like a lot, but but it's,
3: I mean, yeah. when when you are a cacao producer. Selling a bag of beans, it's not a bad thing, but you want to sell a ton of beans or a container of beans.
0: Literally a ton. Yeah, literally
3: a ton. Um, A container of beans can hold 12 metric tons. And so, you know, you want to be selling containers of beans, not like bags of beans. And so it's really fascinating how all these people went to Belize, which Belize produces about 150 tons of cocoa a year. Belize produces a tiny quantity of cocoa in the grand scheme of things, tiny and so all these producers going to Belize saying I'm going to make an awesome brand out of cacao in Belize was just laughable and in fact about a year after everyone got there and started doing this everyone left just as quickly because they realized like this isn't a business at all and I think and so I think that's one of the things that happens is people will see these cacao brands that are getting good pickup. I, I read something somewhere where someone referred to Coco Camellia as a well-established cacao brand. But if you talk to Brian and Simon, they're like, well-established cacao brand? Like, we've been doing this for a couple of years, and, like, we're barely getting off the ground. But I think because people see a lot of their bars, they're like, oh, these guys are everywhere. Um, which is, is often, sadly, to the detriment of them because... What will happen is chocolate makers who are chasing new origins will see a bunch of other chocolate makers using, say, Coco Camelli beans. And then they're like, I don't want to use cocoa Camilli beans because everybody else is using them. Coco Camilli will mm-hmm. say like, but, but, we, but like all 20 of those chocolate makers was like half a ton of chocolate or half a ton of beans, right? Because each of them bought one bag. That's not half a ton. You know, let's say two tons of beans, right? And so like as a cacao producer, you're, you're trying to move volume. Like, that's how you make money. Your, your, your margins are not very high, and so you make money off of m- moving a lot of beans. Um, and so as great as it is for someone to make an amazing chocolate bar out of your beans, which you can be proud of, and is great, if, if it doesn't translate into someone else buying more of those beans, it, d- it doesn't help you as a cacao producer long term.
0: Greg just hit the nail on the head. We're out of balance. The specialty cacao market used to finally have cocoa producers with the upper hand. The lower-margin business, almost always in developing countries, could work with chocolate makers, not just for them. But pretty suddenly, the situation flipped back, and with it, the power dynamic.
3: The main goal of our sourcing report is to help other makers understand how much we pay, you know, where we get the beans from, all these sort of things. But also to help cacao producers understand where we get our beans from, how much we pay, all these things, so that they can... Because, like, if you're a cacao producer in Ecuador, it's very difficult to set your price because, A, there's a market, there's a world market price that is, I think, for lack of a better term, entirely unfair. There's a reason um, they
0: call it the floor price. Yeah.
3: yeah. Well, and it's supposed to be the floor price, but it's often used as a ceiling. Right? It's supposed to be the floor, but most of the time, beans are bought at or around the world market price because people see that as like, well, if I buy it at that price, I'm paying a fair price because the market says this price is fair. Now, this doesn't happen in specialty cacao as much. In specialty, people are starting to move away from being tied to the market price and just saying this is the price of our beans, who cares what's going on with the market. Um, But when you do that, you need to figure out how to price your beans. Um, and so part of the reason we do a transparent or a sourcing report is so that people at least know what we pay for our beans. And, that, and you know, that way they can be like, well, if, you know, it seems like these guys... Because we're buying, like, large enough, but we're buying container-ish quantities. So it's like, okay, if Danline's buying at approximately that quantity, approximately that price, I have a sense of the, you know, the quality of my beans versus the quality of those beans or the flavor of mine versus the flavor of those it, it helps people sort of figure out how much they might be able to charge for their beans. This is really interesting. A lot of the old school chocolate makers, when, when you talk about quality, they get very uh, antsy when you try to associate price and quality. Because in their minds, like, no, 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 price and quality aren't associated. It's like, price is whatever the market tells you the price is. And then if you get high quality beans, that's like, you've done a great job, right? 'Cause like in their minds they're like, no no the, the the quality doesn't dictate price. They're they're like these two different dimensions, which is so fascinatingly different than the way, a the rest of the world works, and B how we see it. We're like, no, if someone makes a better product, like you pay them more money.
0: Isn't you don't you don't try and get the best deal.
3: Never. Yeah. We we what we try to do is we try to get we try to get the, the most fair deal. Exactly. We try to get something that we believe we try to work together to up with something we feel like is sustainable for both of us you know um we've never talked anybody down on price uh if they if they have a if their price is too high and we don't think the beans are worth it we don't buy them you know um and if we do think it's worth it then like the price they're asking like you know apparently it's worth it yeah exactly
0: for the last several years dandelion has been a leader in the craft chocolate industry Not just in size, but also in how they build and maintain relationships with cocoa producers. Over the years, for the most part, they've been slowly adding cacao origins to their lineup, remaining consistent even in the Japan locations. Because for Dandelion, having relationships with cacao producers is not for show. It's a way of modeling how they want to see the industry grow.
3: Ten years ago, 15 years ago... Uh, most chocolate makers wouldn't say where their cocoa came from. In fact, now, like, craft chocolate makers, small chocolate makers will say it, but larger, more, like, older chocolate makers will often not, like, they'll say the beans came from Ghana. But they won't say, like, where in Ghana. Um, Volrona in naming the specific farms and places where they get their beans from, was, was really an oddity. Most people would say Madagascar, but they wouldn't say Bertil Akison's estate. And the reason for this is because there was a lot of this fear of, well, if other people know where I get my beans from, maybe they'll go and buy the beans out from under me, and then I won't have any beans. Like, it, it was this really kind of interesting... Uh, approach to it where I think the way I I think about it is hey, if everybody knows where we get the beans from, those guys can grow a better business and in growing a better business there's a better chance that they're going to be around long term Like Our our goal is that we don't really want cacao producers to only sell to us because if they do, what if something happens to us? Then like it causes a big problem um, for those producers. More than anything I do think uh, right now, consumers see things one way, chocolate makers see things another, and cacao producers see, see things in a third way. Clearly, consumers aren't going to change. You can try to change consumer perception, but like, that is a fool's errand. Um, I think consumers will think what they think. Uh, and so the question is, is how like how much can you tweak consumer perception versus try to understand what consumers do and are looking for, and try to and try to sort of help build things that work, that are in line with that, but are also in line with your own, like, philosophy, et cetera. And so to that nudge end... Nudge them. Yeah, nudge them, right. Um, be, I mean, craft chocolate. Like, no one wanted to pay $10 for a chocolate bar 10 years ago, right? And so that's changed. Um, uh, and so it's not that, it's not that you, you, behavior will never change. It's that I think you can't just ach- assume you can whole-scale change consumer behavior. In terms of cacao brands... I think you're doing a disservice to a cacao producer if you're a chocolate maker and you don't say where you get your beans from. You, you would like your consumers, if they eat your chocolate and like it, you wouldn't be excited if they like brought it to a party and said, here's a great chocolate bar. I mean, I don't want to let you know where I got it from because you might buy all that chocolate out from under me. So I'm going to keep this chocolate a secret. Like, th- that would be laughable. But like that's kind of what chocolate makers do when they don't talk about where their beans come from. And again, this is this is less and less... Prevalent. Like the, the...
0: Beautiful metaphor, though. Yeah, right? I
3: mean, like... well, and this, is, and this is the way we approach everything. Is like, hey, how would we feel if somebody did that to us? Like, how would we feel if our customers did that to us? We should be treating the people we're working with in the same way we want to be treated. I, I'm not saying that to be judgmental because I understand that the, the vast majority of the chocolate market for literally centuries has been no transparency. And so as, as chocolate makers... You learn based on who's around and who's doing something. And like the examples that have been set for a very long time is very little transparency.
0: Transparency in sourcing is one of the two main tenets of craft chocolate. The other is flavor. And in that regard, farmers hold most of the power. But if most of the flavor is contributed by farmers... Then why don't they have more of the power in the market?
3: I find cacao brand a really fascinating topic. And it's something that I talk with a lot of the people we work with about. Because if you look in the wine industry, uh, vineyards have a lot of the the sort of power in the power dynamic between vineyards and um, wineries. You know, a lot of times vineyards will have contracts that say, uh, you know, I get to taste your wine, and if it's not good enough, you can't use the name of my vineyard on your on your wine right and which is really interesting and you'd think well why doesn't the same apply in the chocolate industry and i'd argue the main reason for that is wines are grown in developed countries cocoa is grown in developing countries so there's this inherent power dynamic at play that like that, that i think cocoa producers have never had the same amount of Power and influence that wine growers have had. Um, and, that, and that continues to exist today. And that being said, I think I, I, I'm a huge advocate of cacao producers making their own brand for the cacao itself so that as people try chocolate made from their beans, they'd be like, oh, much in the same way, I know it's not exactly the same, but when people try a Chardonnay wine, they're like, I like Chardonnays. I'm going to drink other Chardonnays. Now, these the Chardonnays, the, like one Chardonnay, clearly doesn't taste just like another Chardonnay, but, it, but it's a thing people remember. And I think for cacao, like right now, people will remember countries. I think, I, I, I very much believe people will get to the point where they'll, they'll start to remember brands of specific cacao producers. Um, and it happens in a small scale today, but I think it's going to continue to happen on a larger larger scale. Yeah. Um, I'm an advocate for cacao producers creating contracts akin to what wineries do and say, we get to decide whether or not you can use the name of our cacao, you know, um, on your bar. Right? I mean, like, it seems only fair. It is completely contrary to the way the whole industry works today. So I think a lot of people might think the concept is laughable. But uh, I, I think we're going to get there. And I think it would help push a lot of the power into the cacao producer's hands, which is important to do. There's too much power in the chocolate maker's hands as opposed to the car producers' hands today,
0: yeah. and I think compared that, to how much they actually contribute to the final product.
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so I mean, I think that I think for for the industry to be truly long term sustainable, that power dynamic has to shift.
0: Greg and the rest of the team at Dandelion do their due diligence of visiting origins and sharing information on their farmer partners, and being very clear about their sources on their packaging. While it's not always possible for chocolate makers to visit Origins, and Dandelion started with more funding than most, in my opinion, they're still one of the most forward-thinking companies in the craft chocolate industry. Greg's visited hundreds of farms in dozens of countries, from Ecuador and Costa Rica to Sierra Leone and Tanzania. His experience is broad and global, while that of our next guest is broad and rather specialized.
4: My name is Vincent Maru. I'm one of the co-founders of Maru Chocolate. We're a bean-to-bar company based in Vietnam. Um, We've been in business since 2011, making chocolate in-country from only Vietnamese-sourced cacao.
0: Unlike a dandelion, Vincent's company, Maru, sources only Vietnamese cacao. They produce what's called a value-added product. This means that the company is based in and produces their product in the same country as they source the raw materials. In Maru's case, they source all of their cacao in Vietnam and make all of their chocolate in the Vietnamese cities of Saigon and Hanoi. But neither Vincent nor his business partner Sam had any kind of chocolate background when they first started. Their initial impression of Vietnamese cacao was actually a lot like Greg's vision for the future of cacao brands. So you started Maru in 2011 with your business partner Samuel Meruda, uh, how did you two decide on making chocolate instead of any other value added product?
4: So uh, we were Samuel and I met in Vietnam, we were both living there at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, we were also both interested in, in doing something new in our lives. One day I was told there was cacao growing in Vietnam, uh, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the eureka moment uh, for me, it was filled with only good things, I mean in a sense of values, Um, you know, working with uh, a noble ingredient in country uh, and doing something original. Uh, No one at the time had been uh, making chocolate with Vietnamese cacao uh, or doing anything uh, with cacao in Vietnam. Uh, There were no real Vietnamese brands known. Uh, So there was a lot to be done. It was very exciting.
0: Did you approach chocolate making through the lens of any other industry like uh, coffee or wine or cheese? I
4: think we were most influenced th- by, by wine making. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was something that for us was the most uh, immediate and accessible in a way because one of the most interesting things that we had learned mm-hmm. was about the terroir effect in, with cacao. So that the terroir influences taste. and one-
0: So that was immediately obvious?
4: Because we were getting samples from different provinces and mm. making immediately, you know, and we were comparing uh, geographic areas that are, that are, you know, very close to each other. So there was from province to province uh, differences in topography and soil types and therefore differences in taste. So we realized that was very interesting and that was probably what we should put out to the world. And in those days, we were the first to do that um, as far as, you know, presenting a terroir chocolate for one country, um, just from province to province, uh, so the, the Baria Bar, the Tingyang, the Lamdong, the Benche, the Domnai, uh, those were the original uh, bars that we, we that we released.
0: Would you define those different regions as being their own brands, or would you say that they're more just? Different origins. Like, what is the difference for you between a single? Well, they're not their own
4: brands. Okay. They're 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 just their own character, if you will. I mean, that's just kind of nebulous concept, you know. But it, there's no official, you know, stamp. You know, it's not like a in front in wine you have AOCs, you know, which is uh, you know, so AOC basically protects the um, what's going on in that specific place. It protects the method. It protects the varieties that are used. And, and each uh, winemaker, for example, in that area has to follow those guidelines. Otherwise, no, they can't use the AOC, right? We're not there with cacao. The only protection right now is through the chocolate maker and their honesty. You know, they're not blending or they're not cheating, you know, anybody. So that's, that's really it, you know. There's no, there's no governing body from Lam Dong, protecting the Lam Dong uh, name.
0: Someone just tripped over a rope while getting in line for the craft chocolate market in Tokyo. That's where I interviewed Vincent. But this is the perfect opportunity to give a little more background on Meru. When Vincent and Sam started the company, it was just the two of them collecting bags of cacao from farmers, riding on their motorbikes around southern Vietnam. Eventually, they upgraded to a car, later adding a driver, and now renting a truck, but it was quite early in their chocolate careers, around 2013, when they started buying more cacao from farmers to ship to the U.S. They couldn't use all of the quality cacao being produced in Vietnam, but they knew that if the farmers weren't selling the cacao, they'd have no problem replacing their trees with something more profitable. The Vietnamese have no cultural connection to cacao, so Maru made sure that the farmers found their connection to it. So how early on did these different regions start selling themselves as this is cacao from I'm gonna butcher the names, but like Shh <laughs> shh Tak Takno Taklak. Da- Taklak Nong Taknong da- da- Yeah.
1: Ting Yeah, yep. Lamdong.
0: They are not pronounced how they're written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how early on did farmers from those provinces start saying, oh, we're not just Vietnamese cacao farmers, we're cacao farmers who sell this, this terroir, I guess, of cacao? Do they well, I think do early on,
4: because what happened is, you know, we, we started kind of bringing those farmers together. So it was to them clear, you know, there was baria, and they, and they could taste the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we created this kind of terroir identity with Vietnamese cacao.
0: But it's not just Vietnamese cacao farmers who are changing how they see cacao. It's the entire industry.
4: I think there is a change in chocolate. I felt it actually at the Saint Louis Chocolat in 2018 in Paris. I think we're coming out of the, the middle ages, if you will, with chocolate. I think we're now in a whole new era and we're in the beginning of it. Chocolate is gonna become more and more, how would you say, sophisticated. In, in, it, in its techniques and its appreciation, and so on and so forth, I see it happening. It's happening at the farm level. It's happening, uh, you know, I see with the chocolate makers, and it's happening with with the consumers. And uh, so much is changing, you know. I mean, this whole thing with fine flavored cacao. Before, it was there were only few producers, fermenters that were making really great fine flavored cacao. Oh you know, in each country, uh, cacao-growing country. Now, each of these countries, or even areas, there are many people doing it. Before, you know, um, uh, now there's fine-flavored cacao. There's so much of it compared to the number of chocolate makers. So the chocolate makers, it's a buyer's market, not a seller's market. And uh, it's changed things greatly.
0: In terms of the cacao brands market, most people point to 2016 as the year that everything shifted in the maker's favor. I've certainly noticed that as the year when a massive number of chocolate companies started, and craft chocolate lovers started dedicating websites and podcasts and books to the industry. But something is still missing.
2: Here's Emily Stone again. I see a huge gap in our industry in that we don't have any real sort of broad-based PR or marketing efforts that Help people understand what craft chocolate is or bean to bar chocolate outside of specific brands. And all of the companies in, in craft chocolate at this point are still, you know, really small, uh, compared to, to bigger food and beverage brands. And so for us to be able to compete against supermarket, you know, industrial chocolate and grow consumer loyalty, um, I really think we need to be doing a better job of getting out there as an industry and telling our story. Um, not just as a specific brand, but as a movement. I think it's critical. You know, I think as we start to see more uh, industrial chocolate manufacturers, you know, putting misleading information on their packaging, we will need to to respond. And it will be better if we are able to be creative about how we do that, rather than reactive to whatever is put out there by um, big industry.
0: Speaking of big industry. As I've mentioned in the Japan episode of this show, the Japanese company Meiji is the fourth largest chocolate manufacturer in the world. 2016 is when they made a big push to teach the Japanese public how chocolate is made. And in the process, they co opted a popular term in the craft chocolate industry, bean to bar. At the same time, they put out a line of chocolate bars titled The Chocolate, which are sold in convenience stores across Japan. Each one is prominently labeled bean to bar and priced at just two U.S. dollars. As usual, the factor which may tip the growth of craft chocolate one way or the other is money. Cold hard cash never fails to grease the wheels on the road. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and share it in any way you see fit. Your support means so much to me as it really keeps me motivated to continue sharing the stories of craft chocolate and cacao from around the world. An especially huge thank you this week to Simran, Emily, Vincent, and Greg for being in this episode. To learn more about our guests, check out the show notes of this episode in the description or on my website at damecacao.com. That's d-a-m-e-c-a-c-a-o dot c-o-m. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road.